Hello, I'm David Sanborn, and welcome to As We Speak. Don Was is my guest on this episode. Uh, The producer, bassist, and record label president shares stories about his start in Detroit, his philosophy as a producer, and much, much more. Talking to you, I mean, it's like you're Zelig. I mean, you just—it's <laughs> like I like look around and pop up. You know, I, I was at one point I, I was watching one of the cable stations, and they showed this movie, The Freshman, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> Marlon Brando yep. and Matthew Broderick. Yep. And you're in this scene at the end. You're you're like the house band, yeah, which is like with Sear was Burt Parks. Yep. And Great at singer. one point, it's like Burt Parks and you. And he's singing Maggie's Farm. Right. And I thought, this is some surreal shit. Hear him say the line, I got a head full of ideas and that driving (laughs) me insane. It was a great moment, man. In fact, it got me the gig with Bob Dylan, I think, because we filmed that scene Uh in Toronto and I'd never met Bob and he was playing in Toronto. It's like maybe 1990 or something like that, so... We, we called a friend of his and, and got, got tickets, and they arranged for us to go back and meet him. And we were producing this record a couple months later. <laughs> but it's because we brought him the cassette of Burt Park singing his song. <laughs> Man, I mean, this is like, this is kind of, like, in a way, the story of your life. It's like these serendipitous moments. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's the farthest thing from an accident is because... I mean, I think it's, you know, it's like you're working all the time. You're always doing stuff. And so you're in the environment where one thing leads to another being in the right place at the right time. But being in the right place is a result of all this work that you've done. And like, you know, like meeting Bonnie Raitt in the lounge at the complex (laughs) in L.A., right? right? right, right. When you're working out, who was it, the Ward Brothers? That, You've done your research, man. That's very impressive. Just that, not what? just that you know the story, but you know the Ward brothers. It was the Ward brothers. Very yeah. good. <laughs> but I mean, I you know, I I've, I've known you for um, close to 40, 40 years. Yeah. Yep. And uh, you know, so a lot of this stuff I already kind of knew. But in kind of re- putting it back together, what I know and what I didn't know, and uh, you know, putting it back together, I, I mean, I just see that you. And you've talked about this. I mean, you've downplayed. You've been very humble about it. About, oh, it was just an accident. Oh, I just met Bonnie in the, you know, lounge at the complex. Yeah, but it, the, the way you got there was by doing the work. And I mean, right from the beginning, like when you started, I, I love some of the origin stories. What I've I've heard you talk about uh, in in Detroit, learning how to to be in the studio, mm-hmm. and you know, like I I think one of the one of the stories is like understand learning how to overdub, yeah, and like put putting a piece of Scotch tape over the um, the eraser. Oh, yes. <laughs> and it's a great method, man. <laughs> it's like I have invented fire. You know, I figured out how to do this, but I mean, it's yeah. just that persistence and and kind of a, a calm relentlessness at at what you do and, and applying yourself like that. One thing did did lead to another, and that yeah. the fact that I I mean I'm this is oversimplifying it, 
but the fact that you didn't seem discouraged, you just kept your head down. I mean, you know, because all of us have experienced, and you certainly more than your fair share of frustration and, mm. you know, like being, you know, put on suspension by your record company, who shall be re remain unnamed, right? Yes, yeah, let's not name them, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the fact that you persevered and that, you know, and then you, you kept at it and then being in that environment. But anyway. Uh, well, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you, the, the, the key to all that is, you, you know, I went to my, I'm, I'll be 71 in September. I went to my 52nd high school reunion last summer. <laughs> so everybody's 70. And some guys look 88. And some guys look, at, you know, at least have the energy and look good. They look like they were 50, you know. So what, what's the difference? I, I dare say that the difference was people who spent their lifetimes doing things that they loved and finding meaning in their work uh, look better than the people who just hacked out, you know, 40 years or something they hated, and uh, it took a, it takes a toll on you. So it's much easier to persevere in the face of adversity if you're doing something you love, something that's not work. I mean, we don't, yeah. we, you, you yeah. don't work saxophone, you play saxophone. It's supposed to be fun, you know? And, and I know you're the same way, probably even more so. If you weren't getting paid for it, you'd do it anyway. Absolutely. Many of the records I've made, I would have paid. <laughs> yeah. The, the advance I got, I'd have given it to them to let me be in the room for it, you know? So that's, it becomes easier to persevere. You got to persevere. You got to develop thick skin. You never really do. Things still hurt. Things happen to me every week that just this one, you think you've seen it all at this point, and there's some new uh, uh, nefarious <laughs> way that someone's trying to, to mess with you. And, and it still hurts. It still stings, you know, and yeah. criticism stings. But you learn, you can't really diminish that, but you can turn it into fuel. And, yeah. and you can keep going in the face of it. And it's not much more to it than that. Everybody gets lucky. And when you get lucky, yeah. you got you to gotta recognize it and and make the most of, of a break. Yeah. Well, I mean, you work hard and then get lucky. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, regardless of what the nefarians are going to do, is that a word? I mean, it's a planet. It I think they, they come it from the be. planet Nefaria. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, maybe that's a Scientology thing. I don't know. <laughs> the Nefarians have invaded <laughs> Detroit. <laughs> what do you think it was about, about growing up in Detroit, the environment there? That was so rich. I, I mean, I know you talked about it before. But, yeah, well, it, it's you know. a really, uh, it's a really special place at a special time because at post World War II, the auto industry was booming and the manufacturing was actually done there, right? So there were all these jobs for people, and they came not just from all over the country, but they came from all over the world to to work in the Detroit auto factories, and they brought their cultures with them. So the first mm -hmm. thing is. You had, you had all kinds of music everywhere, you, you know, from polkas to bluegrass. Everything was happening in Detroit because people brought this music to one place. 
the other thing that happened is that you it, Detroit became a town that was driven by one industry. So so even though my parents didn't work on the assembly line, but they were teachers. But if auto sales were down, then the big three would lay off workers. And when the workers left town to get other work, they'd take their kids with them. So then teachers would get laid off and barbers would get laid off and waitresses would get laid off. So everybody in some way or another depended on the success of the auto business. And as a result, there was no point in putting on any airs for anybody. Like I never saw anyone driving around in a rented, leased Mercedes when I was a little kid. Why bother, man? Everyone knows we're all yeah. in the same boat except for this this one percent of the white collar executives at the auto companies, right? So yeah. as a as a result, you get a very honest working class city with a rich cultural tapestry and you got a lot of colors to paint with on your palette, you know, and I, I think that's that's why a really inordinate amount of great music comes out of Detroit. The the jazz musicians, just on the Blue Note roster, who come out of Detroit, it's it's ridiculous. It's unparalleled by any. I originally, when I first got there, I thought, man, we'll do a Detroit, we'll do a whole series of cities from the catalog. You can't travel very far. You can get maybe two. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Joe isn't Joe Anderson originally from Detroit? Joe Henderson, he wasn't born there, but he ended up there, went to school there. Uh, yeah, Ron Carter, yeah. Yusuf Latif, uh, Donald Byrd, Kenny Burrell, Elvin, and, and Elvin Dad, Jones, Hank, Hank yeah. Fad, yeah. The, the Jones brothers. Paul Chambers, uh, Joe Henderson, Curtis Fuller. It it. It goes on forever. It's a little like that. There's even a school there called Cast Tech that a lot of these guys attended, which is, it's like that school in Houston that Robert Glasper oh, and Chris yeah. Dave and all those guys went to, Eric Arland and Jason Moran. And that, that kind of hip hop jazz combination that Glasper came up with with Chris Dave from the school there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that wouldn't exist without. About those yeah. two guys, you know, you, with, you could, with about those guys yeah. because, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. They they had the talent across a lot of pre prior uh, separate genres, and they said, no, no, fuck that. We're gonna, you know, those boundaries don't exist. Yeah, yeah. and I think that that to me is the most exciting when those developments happen in in yeah. music. When people say, I'm not going to be restricted by the boundaries. I mean, and I, and I think you're of a generation, I'm slightly older than you, but not much, uh, that, you know, we grew up listening to rock and roll, R&B, uh, jazz, all of this at the same time. So what, what are you going to do? Are you going to say, I, I'm going to ignore this part of the music? Like, this doesn't exist? Or I mean, you can't do that. It has to be part of the fabric of who you are. And who you, exactly. And you got to play like who you are. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's where that's where new things naturally happen. Is that each generation absorbs new stuff. When I hear like Robert is a really good example because he kind of, if you listen to him play, especially acoustic piano, yeah. By the time he's done with the song, he's he's cited Monk and a McDonald's commercial. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, in very close phrases, you know, and he's just reflecting the times he comes from. So his synthesis of hip-hop and jazz is 
honest because he's just and it's and the gospel influence and that's what he grew up listening to yeah. and playing and you have to reflect that and that's what's up you know when i got to gig at blue note i had to try to figure out i'm like why are these records that are 50 60 70 years old why aren't they still relevant today why does this music endure what what were these guys doing because it's, it's been my gig now to perpetuate that and the main discovery is that in each generation, Blue Note signed these young guys who were who had absorbed the fundamentals of what had come before and were taking all that knowledge and reflecting the new yeah. times that they grew up in. They created something new. And you know, if you go back to like forty eight and listen to Thelonious yeah. Monk, the records he made, like no one was playing like that. He changed composition. He changed the way he pianist comp behind uh, a soloist. He changed the the way you voiced chords. His whole approach was so radical that he was just a young guy breaking down the, you know, breaking free of the rules of bebop, which is breaking free of the rules of something else, you know? And uh, and you find that with Art Blakey and Horace Silver, right. doing their hard bop. They started putting these yeah. funky little things in, playing backbeats, playing gospel licks, which you couldn't yeah. do with Minton's. Jump ahead, and Herbie and Wayne are doing all these modal experiments, and Ornette and Eric Dolphy are on the label. And a guy like like Robert, or guys like Ambrose Ekamusiri, or Joel Ross, or Emmanuel Wilkins. Or Emmanuel Wilkins, I, would, I was going to say. I mean, I there's a guy to me that's really, you know, not only moving the music forward now, but yeah. has a bright future ahead of him. To you know, it's like there's something different about him that really is, you know, that last record of his was extraordinary. Because well, some guys you you see him now in their mid twenties, and you know that 50 years from now, the people are going to be listening to these records. You just know it. Yeah. Joel Ross is one of them. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, I, I, uh, Emmanuel, uh, do you, are you familiar with the Dudzo Makatini? No. He's South no, African not. pianist on, on Blue Note. Man, this guy, he'll blow your mind, man. He's deep, you know, and he's got a whole other approach that employs uh, African cosmology to the themes. Of the, it's beautiful what he's doing. Are you familiar with Melissa Aldana? Oh, absolutely. She just made a new record that she's doing stuff on a horn I never heard before. She's she's taken the humanity and the bending and making it like a human voice to a whole other level. And so when I see musicians like this who are doing new stuff, and I, I just know the music's going to live forever. I mean, as a player, I hear these people and I go, "This is, this is what, this is what I got into this for, for mm -hmm. this sense of wonder, this sense of discovery, yeah. and the and the and the idea that music is an open sky, that yeah. there's never an end to it. It's a process, and people, you know, come along, they do things that get, have a little more wider recognition. Sometimes it comes later. Sometimes, you know, it's just, it's it's such a rich you know, not to be too waxing poetic about it, but it's just this rich tapestry of music and, and it's people storytellers. Uh -huh. And I think that these, you know, people like Robert and, and Emmanuel um, 
are, are storytellers. They, you know, the, the way they, you know, not only the way they play, but the way they make their records, the way they produce the records. And I think that's something, you know, thinking about the studio as an instrument is something that you were on the ground floor with. Like those early days, I mean, I think a lot of jazz musicians did not look in the studio as being a part of the process. They just went in, somebody set up a mic, and they recorded this stuff, and it was great. You know, right. fortunately, there were engineers like Rudy Van Gelder uh -huh. uh, around that could record th this music and do it well, so yep. that these ended up being classic examples of, you know, not only the music, but re recording quality. And, and I think that, and you've talked about this a lot, about you know, all this has to be in service of the music. Yeah. It's about finding out what the intrinsic nature of whatever artist it is, whether it's Bonnie Raitt, Eric Dolphy, whoever it is, mm -hmm. and bringing out that quality. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, you know, whether it started out that way with the engineers and producers, it certainly has become that of, you know, thinking about the, the studio as an instrument. Yeah, it's and a texture. I think that, it's a color you paint with. Yeah. yeah. I, I guess it's, it's probably being a child of Sergeant Pepper. You know, I was at yeah. the right age when that came out. Yeah. And I yeah. understood that, oh, wait a minute. They're, they're using the technology as a form of musical expression. A four-track. Yeah. Yeah. Track. I mean, a the, track. the accomplishments. Of, but can I tell you, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, because you've, you've recorded, I'm sure, in primitive situations and, and oh, yeah. you've recorded in the very best. And there's something yeah. about not having access to all the technology, not having the bread to go into a great studio. I had, to, I had to learn. I couldn't, you know, like I knew the bridge of a song needed something, but I, could, yeah. I didn't have the bread to like hire an arranger to come in and, and, yeah. and you know, nine string players or whatever. So yeah. I had to go out in the room and VSO the tape so that I could hit this anvil with a hammer and have it ring and it had to be the right note like the, what the orchestra would play and that and make that the texture it's for yeah. it was for lack of resources and certainly yeah. on the earliest records i made lack of knowledge that's that's where yeah. all the groovy stuff came from i couldn't do that now i just i didn't listen to the first was not was album and i'm just sitting there how how did i think of that man how did we come up with that where did this come from because we didn't repeat it we didn't repeat it because after that they started giving us money. We could just hire people. To <laughs> yeah, right. To hit the anvil. Yeah, exactly. Huh? Now, I Give can't me be that anvil, man. Guy. <laughs> Where is that anvil guy? I don't know. <laughs> Down the hall, sharpening his anvil. It's in demand, but, man. It's yeah. over in Michael McDonald's session. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but, but coming out of Detroit, I mean, you, you know, the the the, ba the band that you had with with the David Weiss, yeah, was not was that was kind of your first, like, a like attempt, and su subsequent success in in putting a band together and kind yeah. of like, you know, making music and the uh, you know you were, I, I mean, it was kind of funk music. You know, I mean, it was it. 
clearly, if I had to define it in any one particular way, there were certainly elements of humor in, in it, which I think was an essential part of what what it was, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, walk the dinosaur, okay, you mm-hmm. know, with the video and the, this and all that. <laughs> you know, it was great. I mean, do you think funk was is kind of like in a... I don't want to be reductive about this, but it was at the bottom of like a lot of the way you think about time and rhythm, and that was kind of the, you know, the heartbeat kind of where you started as as a musician. But yeah, I mean, I, the groove. Let me, let me put it that way because it doesn't necessarily have to be you know popping the bass or you know, and it doesn't have to be Bootsy, although Bootsy's great. But yeah, it's just ha- having a deep deep pocket, deep groove. That's a Detroit thing. Yeah. That's a, you know, yeah. and, and you can't be a bass player out of Detroit and not have uh, James Jameson as your oh my God, yeah. father. You know? So uh, he the, was kind of really the guy, right, in Detroit. I mean, he was. He was the fact, guy in the world, if you ask me, man. They're like, oh, no, yeah, one's, there's no one's no touched, about but he's the Robert Johnson of the bass, man. He was, yeah. he was playing four instruments of at once he was holding yeah. down the low end he was providing like those harmonic uh juxtaposition that a cello would he was playing percussion i mean it's just he, what he was doing and he it was a melodic instrument as well you know count he was to playing counterpoint melodic counterpoint while doing all those other things he he thought of himself as a jazz musician yeah and he used to play i mean a, a lot of a lot of the guys that were motown Guys were jazz musicians. Yeah, were and so those who are alive are, and so you know after the after they did the session, they would go play the clubs, play jazz gigs. I mean, what, what was the name of that club? That the Twenty Grand. Twenty Grand, yeah. Yeah, you must have played that. Right? Yeah, I did. Yeah. And yeah, uh, um, yeah it's a great I, club. I, man. Yeah, I remember. Grand. I remember doing. Um, it was. Uh, it was a, a, a record with uh, David Lasley, who you yeah was at one of your early producing jobs. And he First, had a song uh, called American Record I produced. Yeah, yeah. Lasley, yeah. What a great singer. Yeah, what a that, that beautiful voice. guy too. Yeah, great, oh, great God. songwriter too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he wrote this song called "Missing Twenty Grand." Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Just to to get the the timeline straight, after you had uh, you know done some producing for, for the band that you had with David was not was. Yep. Yeah. Then you were you you had some notoriety in 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 England, and some yeah. English groups you know made the pilgrimage. Yeah, but it was still I was still struggling, struggling to pay rent, you know, uh, struggling to keep going. And there were yeah, there were some hard times in New York, man. Where I, I oh yeah, I, I couldn't get arrested. You know, I was a pariah. I didn't have hits, and I didn't know what to do. To have hits, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Now, how did you come to produce Carly Simon? How did how did that come about? I got real lucky, man. I think it was through Frank Filippetti, recording engineer, and she. This is like early '80s, 1983, '84, and uh, I think she knew that music was changing, and she wanted to get some new blood. So she asked Frank, and I, Frank had done some stuff for Was Not Was, and he recommended, yeah. And she was the first big artist to take a shot with me.
here's how cool Carly Simon is, man. I was a mess when she, when I was making that record with her. I, I was going through a divorce in Detroit and a custody battle and all the stuff that I was having to continually go leave the sessions and fly to Detroit and everything. And, and then I, I met my wife, Gemma, in that period. And we decided we were going to move to New York City. But I, I had no credit cards. I had nothing, you know. And I tried to sublease an apartment from David Suskind's sister on the corner of Riverside <laughs> and 78th. Right? And uh, there was like no way I could have even gotten into the board of the building. You know, I just I was just the most undesirable tenant. And Carly, who at that point in time was the queen of New York City, went with me to the uh, to, to meet the the board, the committee, and vouched for me and got me into that apartment. I wouldn't have had an apartment. She took me out. She she said, "Do you know how to buy jewelry for your new girlfriend?" I said, "Well, no." And she took me out. Tell me how to buy jewelry. She, she was just great, man. And she she. You know, she was the first big artist that, that allowed me to, you know, produce a record. I'm eternally grateful. You realize that there are these beacons, yeah. these lighthouses yep. that help, you know, g gives you faith in humanity. And I think that 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 sense of, you know, retaining that sense of wonder and possibility is what's... Uh, you know, essential for all of it. So, I mean, um, and, and being a, you know, certainly as a producer, you know, we're always, you're living from one gig to the next. And in a way, I, I think you, you talked about this, the fact that when you became head of Blue Note, that was your first day job. <laughs> that was that was it. My, like, my, oh, I can get a bank loan now. <laughs> my, my goal in life was to get through life without having to take a job and I never considered right. playing or making records to be a job it was stuff that was yeah. stuff I did for fun from the time I was a teenager and I almost made it uh, you know I made it to 58 yeah. you part you only partially <laughs> failed right yeah because what you're doing is it, you're you know a spy in the house of uh, you know the nefarians well you know that, that's I mean, having, a, that's one way to look at it uh it's yeah. It's not actually quite as nefarious as I imagine. No, I, I, I know. I'm, I'm being <laughs> yes. overly uh, dramatic. You know? I mean, but, but you are and you aren't. I mean, I, my, the sum total of my producer experience was that the record company was the enemy because they, they came to your sessions yeah. and they, they weren't musicians, but they had ideas that they felt very uh, strongly about and they'd force their opinions on you and give you these notes and compromise the music and if they didn't ruin it and you managed to make a good record that was a hit anyway then they'd steal your money yeah. that's how I saw records yeah. yeah yeah which is now, not now, that far from the truth there's there is that element but mostly what I think a record company is now after 12 years of being inside of a major record label it's mostly a bunch of really young people who love music and want to be part of it, but they're not making records themselves. They're not artists themselves, but they'll stay at work till 11 o'clock at night, just doing little tasks that they may not even ever get to meet the artist. The music yeah. business is a lot less fun 
than it used to be. You know, when you used to yeah. get loaded and party with the artists, yeah. and it was, it was a wild time. It's not like that really anymore. Certainly not in the major labels, and uh, so some of the the fun is out of it, but not for them. Man, they just love the music and they find it rewarding to spread the word about something. And that's really what ninety eight percent of the record company is made up of. Yeah, that, that, so there's a different sense of evangelism about yeah, about yeah. the music. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I, I think that, well, you, you just made me feel a lot better about things because you, you know, the fact that there, <laughs> you know, you have a, have it in your head that there's this, you know, this other strata of bean counters that yeah. they don't, they, they, they can only think in a straight line, you know, yeah. that they can't yeah. think holistically. Yeah. About because making music, there's an at, at at a certain point, you can't explain it. Yeah, you can't I mean, explain yeah. why something yeah. works and why it doesn't. And when it's not, you know, empirical, then it becomes problematic. Yeah, and people get nervous and they say, yeah. "Oh, I don't know." You know, I I always used to think of record companies. There were banks. Yeah, you know, they were yeah. just bank. They they gave you a loan, and they for that they took a percentage hefty percentage yep. yeah uh, yeah you know it was that that's what they did they and hopefully the they provide some marketing services and distribution yeah. so they help build uh, yes, a career exactly. that in yeah. the ideal and world I, it's not just about the the advance and, and the thing that's not a it's not a great business for anybody to be <laughs> you know we we try not to act like a bank we're not a bank don't, yeah you know we're we're trying to build careers. Artist and, development. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, Artist development, which yeah. was true in back in the era when we started, we were coming up in. There was such a thing as artist development. And, you know, with, with the, the business being so different now, I think that it's, you know, that concept is like, well, I'll, you know, to, to stick with an artist through the first two or three albums lo- like took a lot of you know, courage and and like foresight and determination. We're going to build this artist because that actually that makes sense on an economic level. Because if you build an artist, you build a catalog, and then by building the catalog, you build you know just one thing leads to another, and it's it's more like synergistic. It becomes yeah. so you know all of a sudden you've got to a point where you've got an artist that has a catalog that gets sells. But you can also go on and on the road and promote new records, and you know they can make a living. Yeah, and I think that's you know really what we're getting down to. And and back in the in the you know seventies, particularly seventies and eighties, when the when the record business was awash in money, mm-hmm. I mean they they were just throwing money at people. Yeah, and if you happen to be in you know in the in the room that that the money was flying out, then you you know you could. Uh, you know, get some of that and <laughs> yep. continue to do what you did. Yep. But then, you know, when when things started to change, with you know, it's a whole other show talking about that. But yeah, uh, you know that that it's just. But I think that joy of, of of the music is something that I I certainly have. It's like, and what you said before, like I would do this whether they paid me or not. Yeah. You know, and often that's yeah. been the case. Yeah, you <laughs> know, like I'm just no. going to do yeah. it. You know, you don't I've want the word to get out too much. A bunch of records for free, you know, because I wasn't busy, and that sounds sounds like fun. Now you almost have to do it for fun. The 
yeah. unless you're making Drake records, uh, the, the, you're not doing it for the bread. That's, that's just got to be for the satisfaction of it. But uh, there's a tremendous amount of satisfaction. Man, I was just, uh, my, my son Sal, just, he gave me a Father's Day card and and part of it was very touching, man. And par, part of it was a, a picture of us in the studio when we made the, the record with Bobby Hutcherson and Joey and Billy Hart. And I don't know if you remember, I brought oh, him yeah. one day and he sat oh, right. Oh yeah, sure. The, yeah, uh, there's a Sal. Sal. Yeah, Sal. Yeah. yeah. Now he just produced Beyonce, my son. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, but, yeah, but wow. he was like he was like in tenth grade or something. Then I think, and uh, yeah, and he's sitting in the studio taking it in, and, and you can see you see you guys in the background, and that was yeah. just that was a beautiful experience, man. We had fun. We made an oh, album that God. stands the test of time. Yeah, the playing on that is is mind blowing, David. And, well, uh, thank I'm, you. I'm, I'm really proud that we were able to make that and put that out and that people loved it and got nominated for Grammy and all that, you know, and we got to spend that time with Bobby before he wasn't able to spend time with us, man. You know, that, that's, that's what it's all about. I think that experience for me was actually the first, I think it was the first time I was in the studio with you. Yeah. Uh, and um, just watching you, how you approached producing was kind of, you know, as I, as I prepared to do this interview and I, I, I reviewed all this stuff, it reminded me that that, that idea of, uh, you know, there's this combination of vision, determination, and humility that you exhibit in the studio as a producer, because it's you had a very light touch, but yeah. it was definitely okay. With this, we're going to do it like that, but it didn't feel. I never felt pressure. Yeah, it's good. in the studio, there was just like, okay, let's mm, let's figure this out. Mm. If your music goes to tape, then the rest of it, it's not the rest of it's not easy, but it's like okay, everything is there. You know, mm -hmm. I re-listened to that record today, and I'm just, I'm really struck by the clarity mm -hmm. of that record, yeah. and 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 you know, flashing back to my memories of it, you know, being in the studio with Joey and and Billy and and Bobby, was just like, okay, let's let's talk around here, mm -hmm. let's play, let's try mm -hmm. this, okay, yeah. you know, we had the repertoire, we're gonna know, and it, it never felt. Whatever pressure there was was just me self-induced. Uh, man, you play, you play, you sounded great. Whatever you, whatever you went to, it it worked. You know? Well, it was you know fear and death. You know, I want to I want to touch on that because you've talked about um, you know whether you get nerves going into any situation, whether it's playing or producing. There's always that element of butterflies, of like you know that edge. Um, I mean, you think that's just kind of comes with it, the, the territory. I I think there's a look. You you know this. There's you if you're having a bad day, you can fake it, and maybe some people won't know. But it, it's not you know, and it doesn't feel good to fake it. You know what what feels good yeah. is getting swept away, and and getting so deep inside of the music that you lose track of time lose track of everything, but you're just flying in the song and 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 the and 
it's like surfing, man. You, you don't know when the wave's coming in. You don't know what the wave's going to be till it hits the board. But you, you get up, and then if you can control the ride and enjoy the ride, man, it every every wave is a whole new adventure. And we we know how to get up on the board and and try to stay up, and, and we can stay up for a long time. But we we don't control the waves. You know, there's a limit to what you can control in the studio or live, and you just have to open yourself up and hope that the that that the electricity flows from from beyond, and that can be a daunting proposition. I don't know how yeah. you can't be humble in the face of that. We don't yes. control it. Sometimes it comes. It it always comes, but you don't know when or how and you can't make it come you know it's be- it's it's the most beautiful thing about playing music is the mystery yeah. of of when lightning is going to strike and but that's can, why we do it that's why we do it that's exactly. the, that's yeah. the yeah. juice yeah that's what keeps us coming back that's the yeah. real drug Did I ever tell you that uh, the thing that got me into Blue Note was hearing a Joe Henderson record when I was a teenager? No. I was driving around, I was 14, 66. I was uh, I was running errands with my mom on a Saturday, and I, and I hated it. I just wanted to be at the mall hanging out with my friends, right? So I was just being a real asshole of a kid, right? To the <laughs> extent that she started leaving me in the car. She said, here are the keys. Just <laughs> play with the radio. I'll be back. So we parked outside of the Oak Park Library. And I was messing with the dial, and I, I didn't realize that, that there was a station called WCHD in Detroit. There was a jazz station, a DJ named Ed Love, who you must have run into over the years. because He's still on the air, but he, oh my he, God. he was on the air in the 60s. And uh, he was, I, I hit the station just as the solo for Mode for Joe came on. You know, where he starts this kind of... He's kind of like just crying through the sax. I thought, whoa, man, but I'd never heard anything like that tone, you know, and that, that kind yeah. of, he was, it transcended saxophone or technique or reeds mm. or anything. Yeah. That's a guy speaking through the horn, and he was kind of mirroring my, my frustration at not being able to go hang out with my friends and having to run errands. But then Joe Chambers, who's still a Blue Note artist, by the way, Joe Chambers kicks in, and he starts grooving on the thing, and Joe Henderson eventually falls into the thing, and, and, and he goes from these anguished cries to grooving. And I thought, I, I thought he was telling me uh, Don, you got to groove in the face of adversity, and it, it in the it happens at one twenty six minute twenty six into mode for Joe. You can hear it, and then then he starts swinging, and and when my mom came back to the car, I was like a different kid. He had, this hearing Joe Henderson solo had altered my mood hundred eighty degrees, and I was a I was a nice guy again, and. The power of that moment was not lost on me. My take on your stewardship, if you will, <laughs> at Blue Note is that you've not only, you know, you're recording all these great artists, but 
in a way, you've kind of captured the spirit of, of Alfred Lyon and Reed Miles, uh, uh, you know, the the people that uh, Francis Wolfe, you know, all these people that were associated with Blue Note in, in yeah. the beginning. That sense of like, this music needs to be out there. Yep. You know, regardless of trends, tastes at the time, this is yep. important music and yep. it needs to be out there. And, I'll tell you uh, something, man. You know, I, I, I'm home now, but in my office, uh, I got a picture of Alfred Lyon and Francis Wolfe and a shot of Bruce Lundball right under them. And they're, and they're like positioned so that they're watching the desk. And I really, it sounds, sounds like bullshit, but it's, it's really true. I do think about what they would have to say about the moves we make. And I, I, I'm very cognizant of maintaining the spirit that, that both of those generations of uh, stewards brought to the, the company. And uh, they were both doing it right. Listen, I, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this, Don. Um, well, it's, it's been a real David, pleasure. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that we had our band Was Not Was from about 1980 to yes. 2008. It's, it's almost 30 years. And I can absolutely cite the high point of, of those 30 years, which was doing the Sunday night show with you. Yeah. And, you know, I'm grateful, of course, to Hal Wilner for booking us in there and, and yeah. for helping you shape those programs. But really, the vibe you created in that show, that it was relaxed and it was it was so conducive to have to and open to letting great new things happen. And we had some experiences on that show. We First of all, we played better than we ever played at any other time. It's, it's up on YouTube, and you, you can see it. That's yeah. that's that's our live band at its best. I, I, I thank I thank you for that. I mean, it was a it was a labor of love for me because I, I I certainly didn't get paid for it. You know, I, I ended up you know, <laughs> I ended up not making any money. Yeah. But the experience of doing it was transformative. I want to thank you so much for being part of that. And being part of this, and uh, it's um, to be continued. All right. Look forward right. to it, man. This has been As We Speak, a podcast from WBGO Studios. This episode was produced by Trevor Smith. Billy Robinson is our executive producer. And the president and CEO of WBGO is Stephen A. Williams. I'm David Sanborn.